Bench Racing Radio. Bench Racing Radio. The podcast with your hosts, Eric Gio and Anthony Leake. Hey, Eric. Hey, Anthony. What do you know about announcing? Uh, not very much. Why? I don't know much about racing, but I've done announcing myself. Do you know who does both racing in the past and the announcing too? I can't think of anyone who comes to mind. Well, I can think of someone. His name's Darren Palin, and that's totally going to be your guest today. Oh, my God. Hey, I want to <laughs> see some sincerity because Darren Palin knows how to be sincere, and you're going to find out how sincere he really is about everything he has to say. That sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah. For our next guest on Bench Racing Radio, we've got a guy who started out his career on two wheels and eventually went on to become a winner in lightning sprints, full-size sprints, and super trucks. He's a four-time track champion in lightning sprints, all before starting a career in announcing. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Darren Pallon. How's it going, Darren? Very, very well, gentlemen. How are you guys? We're doing all right. The The, the COVID winter is really here now. It's hitting, but it's uh, it's all good, man. Keeping our chins up. It's only one winner. It seems like ten. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> like we were saying before, it's uh, it's both the longest and the slowest passing year ever. It's just it's it's a weird time to be alive. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I guess we get started as we usually do. Uh, I'd like to ask you a bit about how you got started and how you got involved in racing in the first place. Well, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, I started out racing bicycle motocross. I, I got a dirt bike when I was seven and rode around on my dirt bike. And then finally, I went to BMX uh, from about ages 10 to 12. Uh, bought my first uh, CR80 in late 1983 and did a couple of years with the Manitoba Motocross Association. And then uh, just, you know, I, I about 16 years old, 15 and a half, uh, decided to leave racing for a little bit and purchased a car and restored that with my dad's help, my family's help kind of got away from the racing just a little bit. And then uh, in 1989, which would have been, I uh, would have been 19 years old, uh, I was always super interested in sprint cars. Uh, I used to watch Lou Kennedy Sr., Kenny Chapman, Don Mack, Linus Mack, those guys that used to run around uh, what is now Red River Co-op Speedway. So I always had a fascination with, with sprint cars and open wheel stuff with wings. But the problem was I was 19 years old. I was going to university and there was no chance of racing a full-size sprint car, both talent-wise and, uh, of course, financially. So I was going to university at the time. And New Bothwell had a uh, what they called a mini sprint class, which were snowmobile engine powered uh, mini sprints or lightning sprints as we know them today. And I thought, geez, that's something that you can do kind of uh, cheaper. So we ended up purchasing that uh, mini sprint in 1989 and uh, started racing in Hallock, Minnesota. And we did uh, Lancaster, uh, Greenbush. That started out in Greenbush when we went to the four stroke. So I raced those cars from about 1989 to 1994. We finished off at Speed Weeks in Florida in 1994. And then uh, the next year I decided with school done, university done, I thought that maybe I'd go race a full-size sprint car. So I, uh, I raced a full-size sprint car from 95 through 97 and watched my money disappear in a hurry. And then I kind of went, time to go announcing. Uh, that's funny. What, what did you take in university? Political science actually. So I oh, wow. uh, graduated, I uh, can't, can't even remember what year. Ask me if I'm happy with that situation now. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your third or fourth career or whatever it is at this point. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe we'll <laughs> skip that too one many, for today. There's too many, too many incriminating photos out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, does that even matter anymore? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I gotta, I gotta step into this as well, Darren. What was your interest in going into political science, though? I mean, there's got to be a motive. Well, I'll tell you what. To be honest with you, here's the here's the honest truth. I uh, found most of the other subjects. I was very busy. I was working a couple of jobs at the time, and I really enjoy writing papers. I still do to this day. I, I like writing and reading, and and that was one of the few sort of disciplines I didn't have to go to school every day. As long as I got my papers done and my essays done, it seemed that I didn't have to attend class every day. So uh, I kind of gravitated that way, and uh, that's kind of how it went. So, huh? That that's is funny. interesting. So racing uh, the the mini sprints in the the full size that that open wheel racing that it's so much fun it's so crazy and and it's 
so alluring. You you got me sucked into it, and when you came back with the uh, NLSA, <laughs> to uh, talk a bit about that, about the the difference in in that open wheel versus when you eventually got to drive some some stuff with a body on it. Well, you know, that was totally different. I never in my life even took a lap in a uh, super truck or a super stock, anything with a full body. So I uh, I went into the first corner on the first day of practice and tried to drive it like a lightning sprint or a full sprint. And uh, I found myself right sideways in the corner and I saw everybody coming through the corner and somehow they all avoided me, which was great because uh, obviously I didn't own that truck and I probably would have had somebody hit me hard enough and I would have to buy the thing. But, uh, you know, it's just, it was just way different. You know, I liked it. It was cool. Uh, the truck was excellent. They just don't stick. And I, and I said to a guy, he goes, what's that like? And of course me being a raw rookie, I said, well, to me coming from a car that plants itself, uh, be it a lightning sprint or a, or a full size sprint, I said, it felt like driving a school bus on a skating rink, but you know what? It was still cool. And that's not an insult at all. It just felt oh, that yeah. different. Like it's just, they got a lot of power and they're and but but they're loose. You step on the gas and they go sideways and it just takes a little more, I would say probably a gentler foot. You just kind of kind of really pay attention versus where the sprint cars kind of stick. And that doesn't mean they're easier to drive a sprint car. They just mean that they're just different animals. That's that's the best way to put it. Yeah. I, I have heard that driving a sprint when they're handling well is the easiest race car to drive out there because the harder you push them, the more downforce you make, the faster you go. And it all just feeds off of itself. Did you find that? Did you ever get to that level with that car or no? I'll tell you a story. And a lot of the racing fans on your program here will probably remember a guy by the name of Kevin Drop, who raced sprint cars in Grand Forks for many years. And I had bought a new Lightning Sprint in 1991 and just didn't have it figured out. It was a four-stroke car like the GSXR powered ones that are people are familiar with. And I bought it out of Oklahoma City. It was a brand new car and I couldn't get the car to work in Halock. And I just, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And and Kevin Drop said, do you mind if I hop in? He, him and his crew were helping me out a bit that night. And Kevin drove the thing and stood the car up on two wheels coming out of turn four. And this was a brand new race car. So I thought my wallet was going to disappear and my sanity. But he said, this car is just not, he said, this car is not handling right. And, and he goes, I saw you drive it. And he goes, you're just not driving it hard enough. But he says, now that you're, I drove it hard enough, apparently. I said, oh yeah, you drove it hard enough. <laughs> and uh, so he kind of, he kind of set the car up and he said, you know, your right rear torsion bar is too soft and you need a different shock. So let's, let's put that in the car and you go out again and give it a try. And it just got better from there. So I haven't talked to Kevin Drop for many years, but he was one of the early guys that uh, that got set up and, got the car set up and that really helped out. And then, uh, yeah, that transition into the full size sprints. I mean, that must've been, uh, even with the experience of, you know, racing and winning in the lightning sprints, that's still gotta be a pretty big, uh, transition to get used to. You know, it's, it's really, really massive, Eric, to be honest with you. It's, uh, it's, they're just so different. You know, I, I described it also like the, the full size sprint almost drives you where the, where the lightning sprint, you kind of drive it. And those cars are just, uh, they're just violent cars and uh, they're, there's something else. They're just, uh, I just wish they were cheaper so everybody could experience it. Cause it's just, uh, it's a ride and a half. It's just so expensive to try to stay in that game. And uh, that's the only unfortunate part about, I think late model and sprint car racing is I think if, uh, if they were a lot cheaper, I think a lot more people would try it. Do you think that the alternative for the crate type late model in terms of affordability is the way to go? You know, I don't know. I've heard a million, like not being a real late model guy and I like watching late models. I just don't know all the intricacies about them. But, you know, there are stories out there where guys are buying several crate engines and they're putting them on dynos and picking their best ones. So does that make the game any cheaper? I'm not sure. And I also, obviously, there's guys that are floating around really top level racers that are going to crate shows and they're certainly entitled to do that. I mean, I, I say if you pay your 30 bucks at the back gate, you're entitled to race wherever you want. It's just, I think it makes it tougher on the average guy that's trying to compete in a crate and have a guy like, you know, let's say a top level guy like Scott Bloomquist come in there with a, with a crate and, you know, so, and that, and that's certainly not a criticism. It's just, I, I don't know if that crate business is the answer either. It's trying to find yeah. a strike a balance between the limitations of, of the technology and, and the ability of someone to be able to, to squeeze as much out of it. hundred percent. Yeah. I always think there has to be some sort of, 
lower level budget class. And, and I've talked to several racers and we've had this conversation where there's no such thing as cheap racing, unfortunately. So, you know, everything, everything elevates, right? I mean, uh, the, these cars go from relatively cheap, but then the next guy wants to go faster. And then the, uh, the dominoes start to fall and the ante goes up and the, the wallets, uh, get spent a little quicker. And I guess looking at it from a slightly different angle, so forgetting about the the potential cost savings of crates and everything, but just looking at like even with sprints, it was like the three hundred five sprints. You know, what's your take on that? On the it, yeah, it's more affordable, but when you lose that extra horsepower and you lose that differentiation between cars, and the guys kind of all seem like they're always stuck in a lineup. Like, they're, does that kill it for you? Does that make it not worthwhile? Or what? What do you think about that? Yeah, you know what? I mean, when we did the Northern Lightning Sprint Association starting in 08, I mean, the idea was to have completely, completely stock engines, everything that ran pretty much together. Uh, but then, there, that, like you say, sometimes that if everybody's completely equal, there might not be a pass in that particular race. And I don't know that that's uh, entertaining for the fans, obviously. They want to see some passing and see some action. So, you know, I kind of feel both ways about that. You think that you want to even everything up and give everybody the same stuff. But sometimes when you do that, well, then you got everybody's even and you kind of wherever you start is where you finish. Well, yeah, and the the issue really is that they don't. There's no affordable option that everyone can have the same. Like to me, I think if if everyone could have an affordable sprint car engine that made 900 horsepower and they were all the same, you'd still have a good race because it's always there's a lot of different drivers and setups out there, and you're gonna have guys who can handle and who don't. But when we're talking about having a 305 with, with you know only 350 or 400 horsepower there's not that much difference between cars and setups and drivers and you're going to feel like you're stuck to, in a pack, right? So Well, that's right. You know, you make a great point there, Eric. I mean, you think about it, uh, those cars are going to be far more forgiving with four or 500 horsepower than they are with 900. So when you get to the 900 horsepower level, now you're separating the drivers, right? You're finding out the guys that can, can handle that. Never mind the skill, but the cojones will say, if that's a word on this program. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. It is absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a, that's that's a, that's that's part of that game in itself too, right? That's a, when you're running those 900 horsepower cars around a racetrack at whatever speeds are going nowadays. That's a, you got to be kind of a different character. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. Darren, what do you feel about the argument over? Well, you know, if you can't afford it, you should be running in a different class type stuff, or if you you know if 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 that class isn't being run. Don't try to get it to be run. Uh, you should run something different. Do you do you believe in that type of argument? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Again, we'll go back to the argument and or the the conversation about how these cars are just they're all getting so expensive, and I, I don't know that you can stop the progress. Like I always said, this. I mean, whether or not I had the money right this second to go race with Scott Bloomquist, would I? The answer would probably be no. I mean, it's all about lifestyle, where you're spending your money, what you want to do. But, it, you know, some of those guys are just, they're elite guys, they're professional guys. And, you know, I, I don't know that the sport's going to necessarily grow because you make it super cheap because it's just not ever going to be super cheap. So that's, I think, the struggle we're going to have in this game for the next 10 or 15 years with younger kids coming up. And I and I hope, I hate to say this, but I think there's less of them that are interested nowadays. And hmm. I think we got to figure out a way to get these kids in cars, but it's it's pretty cost prohibitive. And, you know, the problem is, is you start a, a cheaper class and it gets expensive. So that's, that's kind of the catch-22. It comes down to how much you really engage the youth and not really worry about in terms of the financial side of it, as long as, you know, like one of my favorite things that I've ever heard Kenny Wall say, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with 90% of what he posts on, on Twitter, but I remember what he said at a corner diner once on his Facebook feed where he says, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what you're racing as long as you're racing. Don't feel like you have to be spending fifty thousand dollars to 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 be a race car driver. If if all you can run is a four cylinder or all you can run is a pro stock or whatever the case might be, hey, as long as you're racing and you're enjoying what you're doing, go do it. And I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that's a great analogy. And you know what? Let, let's face it. I mean, we've all seen four cylinder races at at Winnipeg 
and other racetracks. And those can be some of the best races on the racetrack on a given night. I mean, I always thought that uh, it doesn't really matter if you have the 900 horsepower. You want to see some passing, whether they have 200 horsepower or nine. You want to see as a fan, you want to see some action. I mean, I love announcing, but I go there as a fan a lot too. I want to watch the race mm-hmm. and have some fun. And, you know, if there's no passing, it's it's not as good. So, Right. In terms of wanting to be a fan, we're a fan of the next segment we're going to go into called the Misfire Round. We're going to ask you 10 questions. It's like one or the other. Don't have to think super deep about it. You ready, Darren? Well, I'm not capable of thinking super deep. You know me well enough, but let's <laughs> let's get at her. All right. Number one, soccer or football? Football. Surf or turf? Turf. Pizza by the hand or pizza by the fork? By the hand. Number four, Back to the Future or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. Number five, Sprint Cars or Late Models? Oh, Sprint Cars. Number six, Dry or Tacky? Right in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven, Winter, Summer, Fall or Spring? I got to say summer these days. Number eight, Car or Truck? Car. Number nine, Sledgehammer or Chainsaw? Mm, Sledgehammer. And number 10, run or walk? Nowadays, you're talking about pizza. I got to say walk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we have it, Darren. That is the misfire round. You must have seen a recent picture of me or something. (laughs) I I try not to. (laughs) The the COVID-19 is real. There's that there's that pizza delivery driver in the driveway right now. He showed up right on time. We've been at this 16 minutes or so. I'm hungry already. Hmm. Right on. Well, I guess uh, so. After your so you ran out of money sprint car racing, you got out of that game. Uh, then you started announcing. How how did you get your foot in the door in that, and uh, and how did that progress? Well, that's kind of a funny story. You know, I uh, when I was about thirteen or fourteen years old, I told you I had several jobs, and one of them was actually a, a bingo caller, if you can believe that. I uh, I did a lot of bingo calling when I was younger, and uh, yeah, and so. Then I, when I started working at Safeway while going to university, they had me doing all the announcing in the store, like, you know, come down to the produce department, get the bananas and whatever you're going to get. And so anyway, I was doing a little bit of that. So I had a bit of experience, I guess. And uh, Pat Mooney and my dad are very good friends and have been for many years. And uh, I guess Pat was kind of looking for a bit of an assistant. And uh, Lord knows why he picked me, but uh, Larry Nebel was in charge at the time. And luckily, I was super fortunate to train under Pat Mooney. And uh, he's got a lot of experience, as you know, and been to a lot of racetracks. And so he kind of brought me along. And then uh, then in 2000, I applied with Monster Jam and uh, had a great time doing that for about 16, 17 years. How do you like what's the interview process like to be an announcer with Monster Jam? Well, you know what's ha- uh, how that went was Pat Mooney actually worked for the predecessor to Monster Jam. There was USA Motorsports many back in the TNN Motorsports days. We used to get those channels here in Canada. And uh, anyway, uh, Pat had done some work for TNN and for USA Motorsports. And that Monster Jam has evolved over the years. It's gone to several very, very big conglomerates, big companies, uh, ending right now with Feld Entertainment. But the long and short of it was uh, he had a bit of a connection. He was kind of getting out of it. I made a call to Chicago uh, where their head office was at the time when it was called Pace Motorsports. And I knew that there was a show coming to the old Winnipeg Stadium. You'll remember that over uh, on St. James Street. And uh, the guy kind of said, can you show up and and uh, and give it a shot? Well, I walked out there and I'd never been in a stadium announcing anything in my life. And there was about a three or four second delay on the PA. So I did practice that morning uh, with a real gentleman by the name of Joe Lowe, who was recently passed. But Joe Lowe was one of the premier Monster Jam announcers we ever had. And uh, I did a morning little skit with him uh, as a practice. And with the delay in the building, I couldn't even talk. And I went, how am I going to do this tonight? The funny part was, too, I showed up in a suit and tie, like, like a suit jacket with a tie. And he took one look at me and he said, what are you doing at a Monster Jam? He goes, go home and change your clothes before we even try this. So anyway, him and I hit it off. I, I thought he was real funny. And uh, so the only benefit there, I got lucky. And I got lucky in the fact that I got along with Joe really, really well. The other part was the Manitoba Motocross Association was racing there as part of the Monster Jam because they always have quad wars or they have something like that. 
And uh, what ended up happening there was I knew enough about the Manitoba motocross guys because I'd done so much motocross announcing that I kind of, you know, got real lucky, I guess is the only way you can put it. And uh, that was it. So I was off to announcer school that September in Chicago and had a lot of fun traveling around the world for a lot of years. That's uh, that's awesome. And so you've you've since retired from that or? No, I'm I'm actually working for a company now by the name of uh, Monster Truck Throwdown. What the deal is with them is it's a lot of the old Monster Jam guys. Now, obviously, we're not doing anything during COVID. The Monster Jam schedule is just so grueling. I have two young kids, as you know. Monster Truck Throwdown does an awful lot less events, and I get to stay in Canada, and I go for a weekend. So I even take my 12-year-old with me, and we go do stuff like that. So still doing that. And, of course, Beaujolais here with the snowmobile races, and I do some motocross. And just just scaling it down, you know, I'm getting to the point where I want to relax a little bit and still enjoy motorsports, yeah. but want to enjoy other things. You know, it's motorsports is pretty grueling, as you guys know, and takes up a lot of time. And when you have two young kids, you kind of want to be there for them, too. Oh, 100 percent. Darren, I want to I want to bring up something that we talk about every time you and I are at CPTC in Beaujolais for the sled races. Um, what is your motivation for getting into uh, the bagpipes? <laughs> you know what? A friend of mine said, I can't believe you, pal, and you're playing the bagpipes. I didn't think you could get any more irritating. <laughs> So it sounds like a movie wait, statement. You played the bagpipes. And, and, you know, I I do I do I've got I've been doing that for a couple of years. Like, do you like hire yourself out for funerals? Like how does this work? No 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 no. But you know if you actually heard me play, Eric, you might be ready for a funeral. Trust me, I have. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm actually kind of curious what if, if you would like to share, you know, it's it's not an easy instrument to play at all. It takes a lot of patience and practice, um, but there's got to be a reason. Well, it's it's kind of really crazy. I, I played a little bit of drums when I was a kid and I was never into music. I always liked motorsports. We've talked about that and hockey and other sports. And uh, I've always been pretty heavy into punk rock. Like I just uh, I, I really like punk rock and and the Celtic type punk rock has a lot of bagpipes in it. So I go on this punk rock cruise every single year and it's been the last five years, except for this year and getting some friends on this cruise every year. And, you know, we just sit and talk and watch bands. And one guy said to me, Hey pal, and we should go up for this punk rock karaoke next year and we should play an instrument. And I said, I don't play an instrument. He goes, I don't either, but I'm going to learn one. And I said, what are you learning? And I kind of laughed and he goes, well, I'm going to learn guitar. And I said, Oh yeah, well, I'm going to play the bagpipes. So I had to go home and do it <laughs> and then COVID, wow. and then and then and then i just i just thought bagpipes are cool right they're just different so uh yeah, yeah I, I joined the clown boy pipe and drum band and uh we're having fun like not during this COVID thing obviously it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of dangerous playing those things with COVID. they say are is extremely dangerous so yeah, yeah. i can imagine uh, I just, I couldn't, uh, I, I played uh, saxophone for about seven or eight years, tenor saxophone, as well as some trumpet. And the saxophone's relatively easy, just the way the keys work. And then I see, even with you just playing with the little, the the instrument part, not the bagpipe part when we're at CPTC. And it just looks like a simple recorder, but it's nothing like that. And I, I just, yeah, I just very curious. That's an interesting way to say, hey, I'm just going to start playing the bagpipes. Usually people do not come to that conclusion right away when they talk about playing an instrument. So no, I appreciate that's for that. sure. No, I appreciate you bringing that up. If you had told me you were going to ask me, I might not be here right now. I wasn't going to ask you until I told it just it just dawned on me. It just dawned on me. I gotta ask this question. So I, I, it was as fresh in my mind as it was in yours. Well it's important it's important that your uh that your listeners here know that I wasn't doing it live in front of everybody at CPTC. I'm doing it, I'm doing it in intermissions and stuff That's like right. in a That's booth right. with uh with tempered glass and everything else so nobody can hear me. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah we don't no, i mean we want the people to come back when when the event reopens so you know that but you better believe that <laughs> it's enough it's enough that i'm speaking and they come back never mind playing the bagpipes <laughs> oh yeah that's funny so when i've seen you uh you know i got to stand like on the ground level and watch you go out and do the the monster jam announcing and it's it's funny i, I you can you just flip the switch and you go out there and you're just like a a cartoon character version of yourself like how do you how do you get into the mood for that you kind of have to hype yourself up or is it just 
you can flip the switch now and you can just go right into it. Yeah, I, I would say it's more flipping a switch. I mean, you, you kind of have to. Uh, that's how we're trained. And uh, every year we go to an announcer school for four days and they kind of teach us the finer points about how to run an event and, and, and what we're supposed to do for entertainment. And there's some guys that are just unbelievably good at it. And uh, so, and I've been very fortunate to work with those guys. I'm glad that they had me along at my skill level versus some of these guys. Like some of these guys are just so good at it. And uh, so you just, you pick up a little bit from everybody and, and that's what you just try to do. And like Joe Lowe, I mentioned him earlier, he was the first guy that trained me there. And uh, Joe said, you know, just always make sure you got about four or five hours of stuff in your head for a two hour show and he goes one day you're going to need it and, and that's the truth so you just try to go out and do your best and entertain the crowd and that's what you try to do it's not always successful there's days where you do it and you go geez I don't think I was on but that's like anything right you're usually your own worst critic well, I think that's kind of important. I think that's how you kind of get a little better. Now, when that's getting yeah. better is going to happen to me, I don't know, but I'll keep telling myself <laughs> I need improvement, and I certainly do. So, <laughs> so I guess what? Uh, so you, you did all those? You did Monster Jam for fifteen years, sixteen, seventeen years? You said, uh, and yeah. over that time, did you did you branch out? Did you get to do anything else? Like, what's the biggest event you ever got to announce? Well, I went over to Europe a whole pile of times and did, uh, we were out, out in Wales, we were out in Manchester, England, probably Paris, France was probably one of the biggest shows I did. And uh, I think there was 47,000 there. I did some snowcross stuff too, Pontiac Silverdome with uh, the Super Snowcross series. And that was the biggest stadium I was ever in. We, of course, didn't have that like 50,000 people there for the snowcross. But just just seeing a whole bunch of different stuff over the years has just been super, super cool. I've met so many people from so many walks of life. And that's the luckiest thing I take from it. It's uh, you certainly always don't do it for the money and just the, the people that you meet. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's very rewarding. Did you ever get to uh, to drive or ride in a monster truck? You know what? I have not driven a monster truck. I've, I've sat in several of them. I, I don't know why I never had a hankering to get in one and drive one. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I just, they're so impressive. I mean, in so many ways, like for those people that don't think they are, I mean, you see these trucks jump 35 feet in the air and it, it's pretty crazy. Just backflips, front flips, like it's insane how coordinated these guys are getting. It certainly is. And I just, I don't know. I just always been a circle track dirt kind of guy, motocross guy. And I, I never, I never obviously had a lot of respect for it. I just, I just went, eh, I don't know if I want to drive one of those. Like, and uh, you know, there's so many rules with that in terms of uh, safety. Like that is a huge, huge safety driven sport. So it's not like you just jump in and say, Hey, can I drive this around the stadium? It would have to be oh, yeah. organized. No, Yeah. So, you know, and I just went, oh, I don't want to go through that hassle. And in these, uh, all these big shows, I guess, uh, you know, have you, like, what's the biggest on mic fail that you've ever had? You ever just come out and just marbles pour out of your mouth and it's like a bad dream or? Well, that's every night. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of every night. That's <laughs> even what he's not announcing. You, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't, <laughs> that's exactly, that's happening right now. <laughs> um, no, you know what? I, I can't, I, I, I try to think back. I mean, yeah, there's probably been times where you, you'd probably maybe say the wrong winner or something. And, and the key to that is, is, mm -hmm. is if you do, you quickly hear about it on your headset and you can, if you can turn it around real quick, something like, oh, oh hold on, we've got a different situation here. I got to go back to the officials, you know, stuff like that. And that's, yeah. so you kind of dig yourself out of it, you know, you try to anyway. So I, don't I noticed you, I noticed late uh, over the last, several years of listening to you you do state the unofficial results a lot more often than you did maybe 10 years ago <laughs> absolutely yeah you're you yeah you should you know a i can't see as well as i used to and b i just want to make <laughs> sure i'm not making any more mistakes <laughs> but was it has there ever been a moment where you felt like you flubbed it big time and and it really affected you for a couple days and and felt that there has to be something to help uh, amend that situation or or has it been kind of like you just you know it happened you you stew over it maybe for an hour talk to a few people and then move on you know there's obviously been a lot of mistakes made over the years i'm sure of it and uh you try to ignore it as quickly as you can because you got to get on and, and you can't just mm. you know um, the, the thing that it, I'll tell you the thing that intimidated me the worst and, and still does to this day, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on when you're doing a motorsports event. And obviously, 
a uh, lot of noise. So, so you can, you don't want to make mistakes, but it happens. And a lot of the times those engines will cover it. But when you're doing something like a monster jam where you're down on the center of the floor all the time when they're not running and you're doing that track explanation at the beginning and you've mm. got VIPs, Anthony Leake's going to be here tonight. Uh, Eric Gio is going to be here tonight. You got to interview these people from uh, whatever it might be, Red River Co-op or Parts Source or, you know, that kind of thing. There's just a lot of stuff with no engines running that are, that is going on at those times and dead space dead. Yeah. Well, and, and just thinking, okay, what's next. And you don't want to be running into your corner and looking at the script and all that stuff. So you're, mm-hmm. you're sitting there going, if I can just get to that first engine running, then, then we can relax. And that it was always a huge, huge relief when you got through that track explanation and had the anthem, you know, you, you could mispronounce the anthem singer's name, which most people wouldn't know, but I always tried to get that right. And that always made me a little bit, I, I always have butterflies before a show until we got to that first kind of introduction. Yeah. And I can, having announced myself in the past, I find, I remember the first time, I don't know if you can draw any comparisons, but I remember the first time I had to speak to a public audience in university when I was at the University of Manitoba, the student union actually had me be the moderator. First time I've ever done anything like the moderator for the student president elections. And I remember standing there, my best friend, uh, Chris Stevenson, staring at me and go, why are you so nervous? And I'm just like, I don't know, man, I've never done this before. He goes, yeah, but you've announced racing. And I mean, you deal with, with people all the time. I said, yeah, but this is what I'm like every time, like super nervous, like feel like your heart's in your throat type stuff. What I learned was that just take a deep breath and start talking. And it just starts to flow after a while. And then, like you say, once you start getting through a bit of a rhythm and and you introduce those first few people, it's like all of a sudden you just, everything starts to flow right from, from that point on. Yeah, it's kind of, it's definitely sink or swim. And I can tell you, uh, it's strange because we were talking about that track explanation type thing at the beginning of the shows and you've got everybody's eyes on you and the idea, Mm -hmm. and I've told every announcer, when you're doing that kind of stuff, what you need to do is look beyond everybody's eyes. Just look at the colors of their shirts because when you lock eyes with somebody, it's a really sort of awkward thing. And uh, like, I think it's harder to speak in a room of eight people for myself anyway, than it would be to speak to a stadium of people, as long as you can, you know, just, just remember, it's all just to see a color and you're there to entertain. And, but, but it, it's definitely more difficult, I think, in smaller groups, because it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little more scrutiny, I think. So we're going to move into the next portion of our show, which is called In the Driver's Seat. And I know you haven't raced for quite some time, but I'm sure all the memories are stacked upon each other uh, in terms of what you experienced as a race car driver. So I'm going to ask you five questions. They don't, they're not like on-off type stuff that we did in the previous Misfire round. Just give us a little bit of detail about it, just to talk about what it was like being in the driver's seat for you. So going with number one, uh, which driver did you have the most fun race? against in your career wow that's something else uh there's a lot of great ones um most recently i would probably say in the super truck division obviously the geos have always been fast in that division and lee mccray that's just a recent memory and i'm only going recent because uh there's a lot of old old memories but that might take a while and number two what went through your mind the first time you jumped in a race car and started your first race I was actually thrilled. Uh, you know, it was it wasn't much of a race car. It was a 503 cubic centimeter, like a 503 cc skidoo, small little mini sprint that was built in New Bothwell, and they didn't go that quick. And we raced it in Hallock our first time, and so it, it wasn't real intimidating. It just uh, I, I just remember being thrilled, and this thing's finally on the track, and I get to go on the dirt track like my heroes, Kenny Chapman, and all those guys that used to race back in the day, Kennedy and. You know, I just, I just felt cool. I felt even at 19 years old, I'm like, Hey, I'm doing what those guys did, even though I was going 24 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And your car, that was like, you had bought it before you had ever gotten to drive one. Like you had, you were already pot committed like that or. Yeah, for sure. New, new Bothwell was just, you know, kind of going out of business there and closing down, but they were talking about running them in the state. So I bought this thing and had no clue. And, uh, we kind of just worked over, uh, worked on it over the winter, and I got an engine sponsor that uh, just put new rings in the thing, and and that was it. So number three, if you went three wide with a lap to go, which spot would you prefer to be in the inside, the middle, the outside, and why? Uh, inside for sure, and I've always been there because it just seems a little bit too hairy up on the top of the racetrack for me. Okay, Ward Emery. <laughs> <laughs> 
Where do you think I learned that? (laughs) (laughs) Number four, what did you do in the car just before you drove out of your pit stall? Pray. No, quite seriously. Uh, I just tried to think about what I needed to do and look around and, uh, you know, just, just try to absorb it all and, and get ready to the ra- get, get ready to go racing. Was there a zone that you had to get yourself into? Like, did you have to push other thoughts aside or was it just really jump in, put on the helmet and look around and say, let's do this? You know, being a hockey goalie all my life, I remember trying to focus a lot more playing goal than racing. And I can't tell you why that ever was, but it just seems to me that with the racing deal, like you, you know, you wanted to do well and you looked around at the lineup and you go, okay, this guy's there and that guy's there. But I I guess you, you try to put all the other thoughts out of your mind and go, I just don't remember. Like I remember playing hockey and just like almost getting sick two hours before a game. And I don't remember that with racing so badly, but maybe I was way more competitive in hockey. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. That no, it's really good. Number five, what race would you consider the one that got away? You know, motocross race. Uh, I was fourteen years old, and I was in Saint Jean Baptiste, and I was on the final lap, and I went across the final tabletop. Over across that tabletop, my dad was standing just on the other side of the tabletop, and I came over in first place, and I looked at him, and I'd won. Well, the race was four laps. I had run three. So I'm kind of celebrating and he's pushing. He's going, you better go, go. And I'm like, what, what's the matter? And I look behind me and I see two things. One, the white flag and a guy coming around to pass me. And I went, oh, so that's the one that got away. Wow. That's an incredible story. It's all true. I would hope so. I don't know how often you, well, there are lots of people that, that run short of the line, but that's, I never thought it'd be someone I knew. Well, you asked me last year why my dad doesn't talk to me and there's your reason. (laughs) (laughs) He's still disappointed. (laughs) Every day. I got to get that brown bag off his head when he walks around with me. (laughs) Did you you ever win one on two wheels though or? I did. Yes, did I did. Yes. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. Finally. Well, that didn't wash away of... anything. Yeah, I did. Yeah. That was just, that was just awful. That was something else. Oh my yeah, gosh. No, I feel terrible just listening to that one. So. Yeah, I know. There's some yeah. jaw droppers on this, uh, on this interview for sure. But I, I have a really positive one for you, Darren. This, this isn't a real situation, but you never know. Lotto 649 or Lotto Max might happen for you if you happen to buy tickets. Uh, if someone gave you $10 million to build a race team, uh, who would your drivers be, pick two, and what series would you run? Well, it'd have to be on dirt. Uh, oh, that's a tough one. Like Manitoba guys or anybody? Anybody, Darren. We're going to let your brain do the imagine- well, uh, imagination. <laughs> I guess if you're going to get ten million dollars, and you, if you if you're strictly going on guys that that are are the best, I think you'd have to go with a Donnie Shots, of course, in the sprint car division. I, I've watched him a lot of years, and actually did race with him in Winnipeg a couple times when he was younger. And uh, so, you know, that's just going with the elite guy. What series? Well, it'd be the World of Outlaws, obviously. I, I just don't have much interest in pavement racing too much. Uh, and I would say eh, maybe a late model. Um, you know, I would just go. With Ricky Weiss, and the reason I say Ricky, of course, is he's a he's a great kid, and he's just uh, he's done amazing things. Let's face it, he's mm-hmm. come out of Manitoba, and so if I had that much money, and I know it's a lot of money to race there, and I'm sure he does quite well up there, but if I had some money, I would just say, you know what, let's give Ricky uh, an even better chance. Although he's he's doing amazing things already. Yeah, no, so solid answers. You passed the test. <laughs> wow. We're done. Yeah. We're done. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs> First time for everything. There you go. Uh, so you're talking a bit about your uh, your buddy Pat Mooney there. So he kind of got you going in the uh, in, in announcing, and I, I got to say it's one of my favorite things. Whenever I do get the opportunity to sit there and just listen to you two guys just make fun of each other on the on mic, basically. <laughs> Tell us well, a bit about at, your at least relationship. You're- and getting to work. I was going to say, I was going to say, at least you're listening to him. <laughs> uh, uh, experience with Pat Booty, boy, how long do we have? Um, no, he's a, uh, he's a character. I'll tell you. Uh, I, I like him. He, uh, 
you know, he, he's got a great knowledge base in this sport. He's been around it for 150 years. And, uh, I just, I like, uh, I like the way he comes across. I just, uh, some days I go, wow. And I go, geez, that, that's, that's telling it like it is. <laughs> so yeah. I think I've fallen out of my chair a few times yeah. listening to him, but you know, uh, I'll, I'll say this, uh, in a world of, a hundred percent what we're feeling now, a hundred percent censorship and everything else. Like it's pretty refreshing to hear stuff. And uh, I just, I get a chuckle out of that kind of stuff daily from, from all walks of life. And I, I kind of still try to enjoy a lot of it, you know? So it's good. When you did the, the Prairie Dirt Digest, the podcast, it probably, it's what, 15 more years ago now when you start 04, 03 or something like that for mm-hmm. three or four years. What was the reasoning for doing that? What, what was your motivation to, to start that podcast at that time? Well, I have an audio recording business. Uh, we do like uh, voice recordings for telephones, message on hold. So I had a background in the recording process. And Pat and I just said, you know, wouldn't it be cool to do something like some kind of radio thing. And I, of course, uh, they're not going to let us on the radio. So I said to him, there's this podcasting thing coming out. And it was very like what we're using tonight. This is super, super cool. Uh, but he would come over and he would uh, sit with me and we'd come up with a show idea and uh, we would record it and then we'd edit it and put it up there. And But it was very, very different than it is now. Like this is really, really neat. Yeah, and I remember being at your place doing an interview 15 years ago. It was it was entertaining to say the least. And you know, it's interesting that the two of you, you know, as much as it is to listening to Pat, your jaw dropping sometimes when he has things to say. That dynamic between the two of you was was top notch uh, at that time. Do you do you kind of miss it? Yeah, you know, certainly I do. You know, I, I, I'd love to probably get back at it one day. It's just, again, we talk about young children and we talk about sports schedules and all that other thing. And it's just, it's pretty hard to fit it all in. I find most days that, uh, you know, it's it gets late and you're putting yourself in bed and you're like, holy geez, like we're going to do this tomorrow. So that's uh, that's kind of the reason I kind of stay away from the racing side of things nowadays. I just, I, I just can't imagine even how I did it five or six years ago. And was in the garage and it's just so much fun, but it's kind of addicting. And I also have other obligations that I have to worry about. So, and yeah, so you, you raced from 2008, you brought back the, uh, the lightning sprints and you were, you're running in that for a little while. And then you, you eventually retired from that. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of second career in driving there. Tell us a bit about, uh, about that and what going back into it after having been out of it for a while, did you, did you find that to be, an advantage or were, did you feel rusty? Like, what was that? Well, certainly I think I, when I came back, uh, I was 40 ish years old, probably 38 years old. And, uh, it'd been a while since I had done it. It would have been, well, since I left the full size sprints in 97, it would have been another 11 or 12 years. But the thing about that lightning sprint deal for me was doing it in the nineties. Uh, you know, we were racing in Greenbush and Hallock and there was a lot of two stroke powered cars. And I always loved the cars themselves. And I love snowmobiles. Uh, I just like snowmobile engines and snowmobiles and, we were starting to get into the bike engines in the nineties and I love the sound. And I just went, you know, these are trick engines. There's, there's, you know, 16,000 RPM here and these engines run forever. And so I just, I felt the need to, to kind of give it a shot to bring the class back. I felt that I left it in 94 to go to the full sprints. And I thought, I think we can do something really, really cool here with these cars. And uh, unfortunately it never really quite panned out. Uh, the way I'd have liked to seen it long term, but I just really, really like the cars. I mean, they're they're just they're full midgets now, uh, like what you see at the Chili Bowl with a bike engine. And I thought, you know, they're not fifty or sixty grand for an engine like a full size sprint. You can get almost the same thrill. So I, I I felt there was unfinished business, and I wanted to bring it back and work hard at it and uh, see how far we could take it. And it was fun. And there, and there was a lot going on at Red River Cove at Speedway in particular during that time, like 08 to about 2012 with late models coming into full time, I think in 09 and running the Monday shows and like eight classes, like eventually something had to give. Unfortunately, one of those happened to be the lightning sprints over time that those numbers started to dwindle. Do you think like in terms of how things were dealt with, with almost a saturation of classes that the lightning sprints just ended up being the odd class out yeah i think so you know i think what happened with the obviously eight classes is too many we all know that um 
we did have a pretty strong field of cars. I think 18 or 19 was our record. And the only thing that I, that I heard from a lot of guys with the eight classes, when we went to the Monday, Thursday format, I used to announce both of them and Monday nights, we'd have no fans in the stands. It's just the way it was because it was viewed as a lesser program, whether it was or it wasn't, uh, that's how it was viewed. And a lot of the drivers said, look, I just, I can't get sponsorship. I, I can't bring a sponsor here and have a hundred or 200 people in the grandstands. Like I've showed them pictures of the grandstands full. And then now we bring them here Monday and there's nobody here. So I can't ask anybody for money. So that's kind of, I think what happened with some of the numbers and, uh, and uh, you know, it just kind of fell off the wayside. You know, I enjoyed it. I was glad I went back and did it and had fun with it. And I had a great group that raced with us and uh, we had a lot of fun together and did some U.S. racing as well. And, you know, that's what it's all about. It's the camaraderie. It's, you know, getting together with the guys and the girls in the sport and having fun and, you know, trying to do your best each night. So promoting the sport, I think, is the biggest thing. And I think we all uh, we all can kind of have a hand in that if we do it right. So now that you're uh, you're out of racing, I know that you have a couple of pretty sweet cars in your garage. Do you are you still restoring cars, or do you just have a couple that you uh, you drive around? Well, no, I've uh, I've restored two of them now over the years, and I still have the car that I bought when I was 15 and a half. So uh, that car's I've done twice over the years, and I've got another one I bought 10 years ago, and I'm actually going through that one right now. It's uh, it's done, but I'm just making some final adjustments on it, and they're never really done. So. I just don't get enough time to drive them either. Like we sometimes go out Sunday nights and have some fun with them, but it's uh, one of those things where, you know, you just try to get as much done as you can in a day. And if you get time to go in the garage and putter around when the kids are in bed, that's great. Do you f- still fill up your daily with a thimble? Yes, I do. I do. That thing's still running. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'll never forget how many times in the podcast when Mooney would talk about using a thimble to fill up your daily. <laughs> that thing, that thing I think has got 500,000 K on it now. And I'm just, oh my I'm just, I'm just doing it for a joke now. I think it's funny. Is that the Honda? I just think it's funny to drive it's that. The Honda, yeah. yeah. The Honda element. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever look, <laughs> yeah, if you're looking it. to ever get any more macho. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as long as it's got four wheels, eh? <laughs> yeah that's for sure <laughs> yeah i remember making a, a border run to go get parts with you in that thing back in 09 yeah yep, i still got it i still drive it daily <laughs> so it's uh it's, it's, awesome. it's funny you know, it probably runs on wishes and prayers now it certainly does that and you know you get used to people laughing at you it's kind of been the story of my life so it's all good and, uh, and your uh, your two boys so are they uh are they at all interested in racing you think you know, I would say Travis, my 12-year-old, is more interested in racing, whether or not he's going to get behind the wheel or something. We've had some opportunities to go to Gimli and do some asphalt stuff with the go-karts. I think we're going to maybe give it a shot this summer once or twice just to see. But no, you know what? They're, they're big into sports and they're both big into music. Uh, my older one plays guitar and piano. My younger one plays drums and uh, piano. So they're they're doing that a lot too. So I just try to get them a balance. They love hockey. They love football. So that's good. They're staying busy during this COVID thing. And that's been the biggest challenge as far as uh, most parents are concerned now is just trying to keep your kids busy and they're doing okay. So that's great. You still playing net, Darren? I, I do. Yeah, I've, I've actually, uh, my average is the best it's ever been for the last three months. Now, I haven't had any shots, but, but I haven't had any goals on me. So there you go. I am on a shutout streak and it's just night. It's nice not waking up every morning and being uh, scared by that red light above your bed blinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place. It's a good place. That's good. Are, are uh, any of the kids uh, wanting to be goalies too, or are they just leaving that to you? No, their IQ is over 60. I think they, they should stay where they are. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dive into that quickly because I know we are running out of time here, but why the decision to be a goalie? Was it just an automatic, I want to try that? Or was it uh, something that you switched to over time? You know what? No, I started playing goal, I think when I was seven or eight. But uh, you know, the funny part is I always loved playing goal and I still do. I think it's great. But when I went and played shinny all the time, I actually, I love playing out too. So I, uh, I just think that it's a great game. No, no matter what you're doing, I, I just love that game. And uh, as long as you're having fun at that, that's the key. But goaltending, I just, it's, it's kind of a challenge. It's kind of, it's a team game too, but 
when you're in the net, you're just kind of sort of alone by yourself and you got to kind of perform. And now whether or not that's ever going to happen to me, we'll see, but, but I'll still stand there and try every night. Yeah, there's two funny things about that. Usually uh, the goalies are the kids who their older siblings made them put the pads on and take shots. And uh, so it's funny that you didn't have that. And, um, and just the, a lot of retired professional goalies vow to never put the pads on again. They only want to play out. They only want to go out and skate and just have fun and, and shoot. So it's, uh, it's, it's funny to uh, see some of those similarities there in that position. Well, you're right about that. I know some goaltenders that have never put the pads back on again. So, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, you, you do want to play out. And I, I love playing out as well. It's just uh, it's getting the wind at my age to be able to do that. I mean, you need, you need cardio and all that other good stuff. Do, do you think that there's almost like I was a left winger when I played till I was 15 and then played some some beer league stuff in university as a winger? But I, ne- I never really connected much with with goaltenders. And I always hear about the story about, you know, they have this certain aura in terms of how they focus, how they practice uh, superstitions and things that they do. Is it almost like you have to ha- have a certain kind of cultural perspective to be a goalie? Like, would you attest to that at all? Well, if you're asking if goaltenders are unique, I've been called that a million times. So I, I would say that, uh, yeah, you know, see goaltender, it's kind of funny, right? If you're a goaltender, then you get it and you get other goaltenders and players don't yeah. play, players don't get the goaltenders and yeah. goaltenders don't want to get the players. So it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like different players want to try to understand goaltenders, but they can't. And goaltenders just don't care about players. Well, that's why, thank God, there's the front of the bus. We don't have to sit in the back with them, like, you know, so they're, oh, they're, they're, uh, they're free to make all the mistakes they like. We'll just save them every time. We'll, we'll look after all their mistakes. Right. But it's, right. it's, okay. it's the banter is always funny. I, I love doing that. I think that's, you know, especially uh, I play with a team called the Winnipeg Steelers and they're some of the most funny and sarcastic bunch of guys you'll ever see. And that's, that's better than the game these days. It's just neat to sit in the dressing room when we could and, and talk. And uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fun because there's just so much fun stuff floating around the room. And that's, that's just uh, something that keeps you kind of young. Yeah. I, I don't really have anything else, Anthony, you. Uh, Darren, it's so great to have the opportunity to listen to your perspective on some of this stuff. You know, you're a very well-spoken individual, and I appreciate you being on this podcast on Bench Racing Radio. Well, I really appreciate this. I think you guys are doing a great job. I've listened to some episodes, and it's great. And uh, keep it up, because I think it's good to promote the sport, and that's what we need to do. Thanks. Yeah, no, we we thank you so much for coming on, and it's just... uh... It's great to sit down with you and get your uh, your perspective on this stuff. So we'll have to do it again in the future. Well, I'm glad we're wrapping it up because that pizza's getting cold. <laughs> well, Darren, you can go. you do one more? Fa- can you do us one more favor? Could you like you know close this podcast with your amazing announcer's voice? <laughs> what do you want me to say? Well, can just you- say yeah. I don't know. <laughs> And now, a 17-inch pepperoni and mushroom pizza. (laughs) That's great. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. That's right. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Darren, for being our guest. We'll catch you next week right here on Bench Racing Radio. Thanks for listening to Bench Racing Radio. Like and follow our social media handles. Facebook at Bench Racing Radio. Twitter at Bench Racing Rat 1. Or Instagram at Bench Racing Radio.